Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I am privileged and honoured by the invitation to join this illustrious academy. I wish to express my sincere thanks. Before going into what I prepared, I just want to tell you an anecdote. I was in Oxford at the same time as Roger. We were both students there. And whereas other students walked between lectures, he did three miles around the block running before he got to the next lecture. He never walked anywhere in Oxford. He always ran. Michelangelo once congratulated on having quickly produced a magnificent sculpture out of a square block of stone, according to the legend, shrugged off all, comp all compliments. It was there all the time, he said. It just needed someone to come along and uncover it. Research discoveries are much like that, including many of those that lead to the spectacular advances in medical research in recent decades and which have improved the expectation and quality of life for millions of people. I have spent 50 years trying to discover what was there all the time, as have many other scientists, but there are still multitudinous things to be discovered. My guess is that we know about 10% now of what we shall know about the workings of the human body in 100 years' time. My route into science was through the chemistry set given to me at the age of 12 by my parents. My mother was very tolerant of me using a Bunsen burner attached to her gas stove until a minor explosion associated with the preparation of a stink bomb splattered the newly painted kitchen, changing its color. It was then that my father very wisely built me a shed in the garden and equipped it with gas, electricity and water to provide my first laboratory. Looking back, I was a born experimentalist, curious to probe the unknown, and chemist who was then the only practical outlet for this driving curiosity. It was therefore natural on leaving school for me to take a chemistry degree in Birmingham University, but by 1946, when I graduated, I was completely disillusioned for the experiments that we did in practical class were simply following recipes made up by others. There was no discovery in it whatsoever. So when my chemistry professor asked me what I wanted to do, I said anything but chemistry. Fortunately for me, he had that morning received a letter from Professor Byrne in Oxford who wanted someone to train in pharmacology. Would you like to be a pharmacologist, he said. Without any hesitation, I said yes, and then went to the library to look up what the word meant. <laughs> it was on that brief conversation and the fortuitous arrival of that letter that the whole of my scientific career was built. In case you are having the same difficulty with the word, pharmacology is a study of drugs, not so much the illegal ones, but more those which help alleviate infections, pain, and suffering. I'd like to tell you a little about one of my discoveries, which was uh, recognized in the Nobel Prize in 1982. It concerns the drug aspirin, uh, most widely used drug in the world. Aspirin was synthesized 103 years ago in a drug company, Bayer, 
in Germany uh, by a chemist called Felix Hoffmann. He invented aspirin by adding a simple sidearm to the active principle extracted from willow bark and used for thousands of years to treat pain and fever. Trademarked as aspirin by Bayer and sold over the last 100 years, we are now eating worldwide 45,000 tons of aspirin every year for the treatment of headaches, rheumatism, fevers, and more recently, for the prevention of heart attacks and strokes. But nobody knew how aspirin worked until we uh, discovered the way some 30 years ago. We were working on a particular type of chemical messenger in the body called prostaglandins. We found that certain prostaglandins, and there are many of them, were involved in causing inflammation and fever. I was writing a review over the weekend at home when it suddenly occurred to me that all of the many properties of the prostaglandins were affected by aspirin and similar drugs, of which by then there were several, such as indomethacin, ibuprofen, and other anti-inflammatory drugs. Perhaps aspirin-like drugs, I thought, were interfering with the enzyme that produces prostaglandins in the body. In the laboratory on the Monday morning, I said to my colleagues, I think I know how aspirin works. And to be sure that they hadn't had the same inspiration over the weekend, I said, do you? Not being a biochemist, I went to the literature and found, how, found out how to isolate the enzyme which makes prostaglandins in the body. I prepared some in test tubes, added different doses of aspirin and similar substances, and found that the higher the dose of aspirin, or aspirin-like drug, the more the production of prostaglandins by this enzyme was suppressed. After repeating the experiment many times in different, many, many different ways, I published the results in 1971 and suggested that aspirin and similar compounds worked through the, the prevention of the formation of prostaglandins. The idea was that prostaglandins were released locally uh, by an inflammatory stimulus in pathological excess in inflammation. And by reducing these uh, with aspirin, you suppress the fever, pain, and swelling of inflammation. At the same time, because there are now quite a few of these drugs, we knew that all of these aspirin-like drugs irritated the stomach to a greater or lesser degree. And so I also suggested that the side effects or adverse effects the unwanted effects were due to the removal of prostaglandins that were essential for the healthy functioning of, for instance, the stomach. The theory was generally accepted and has stood the test of time. More importantly, it was the discovery of the basic mechanism of action of aspirin that has led to several new uses. Knowing the mechanism of action, people started test whether aspirin prevented heart attacks. First of all, they started out with the large doses used in rheumatism, but over the years, clinical trials in hundreds of thousands of people have shown that only a, few, only a small dose of aspirin is needed, and that even a baby aspirin, 75 milligrams, or a quarter of a normal tablet, taken once a day, is sufficient to reduce heart attacks and strokes by up to 50%. This is such a small dose that in lectures I sometimes jokingly say 
that we should all keep an aspirin tablet in the bathroom cupboard and lick it every morning. So there are many thousands or even millions of people who take a baby aspirin and are alive today because I did that crucial experiment on a Monday morning. But the story does not stop there. For about 10 years ago, also by serendipity, some American scientists found that there was not just one enzyme called cyclooxygenase or COX in the body making prostaglandins, but there are two. COX-1 is present all the time and is a physiological one which protects the stomach. Another one, COX-2, is specially induced by inflammatory stimuli. It's COX-2 which is important for producing inflammation. And luckily for the pharmacologists and medicinal chemists, the enzymes are very slightly different. And so the search started for a drug which selectively inhibited COX-2, but had no effect on COX-1, thereby minimizing the irritation of the stomach. And that is very important for in people taking chronic doses of anti-inflammatory drugs for their rheumatism. Some 100,000 every year in the USA are hospitalized because the drugs they are using have caused an ulcer in their stomachs. And about 15% of these people die in intensive care. The process of discovering COX-2 inhibitors carried out in two major American companies, Searle and uh, Merck, took 10 years. And there was intense rivalry, going back to another question, between those two companies in producing the drugs. But there are now three of these drugs on the market, and in major clinical trials, they indeed have less side effects on the stomach than the ordinary aspirin-like drugs. I'd like to give you another example that illustrates the international aspects of science. In the mid-1960s, a Brazilian postdoc called Sergio Ferreira came to work with me. For his PhD, he worked on the venom of a particularly nasty Brazilian snake called, Brazil, called Bathrops Yararaca. And he brought some of the dried venom extracts in his pocket when he came to my laboratory. I suggested that we should study this snake venom extract on the mechanisms of controlling blood pressure, particularly on an enzyme which generates a very strong pressor substance called angiotensin. It turned out to be a potent inhibitor of a key enzyme known as angiotensin-converting enzyme, or ACE. At the time, I was consulting with Squibb in New Jersey. I suggested to Squibb that this inhibition of ACE by the snake venom peptide might lead to a new drug against high blood pressure. It would certainly test the concept as to whether angiotensin was involved in high blood pressure or not. Scientists of Squibb were enthusiastic and started a program to isolate the active venom peptide. The marketing people were less than enthusiastic. They did not see a market for an antihypertensive compound that had to be injected, as indeed a peptide would, and nor one that comes from a nasty snake venom. Indeed, the program was almost dropped because of marketing pressure. However, the chemist made a kilogram of the active peptide from the snake venom, and this was shown to reduce a high blood pressure by John Lara in New York. Thus, the concept had been proved, 
and if only a simpler compound absorbed by mouth could be found, it would be of great therapeutic potential. After several more years of research, after I had left being consultant, the scientists discovered an orally active ACE inhibitor, which they took to the market, calling it Captopril or Caputen. Since then, many other ACE inhibitors have been introduced, and I have a paternal pride in the fact that these drugs, apart from having a $50 billion worth sales per annum, uh, are preventing high blood pressure and heart disease in thousands, if not millions, of people. And that would not have happened without the blue sky research on the snake venom, which started in Brazil and then went on to my laboratories in London. And there are other things that may not have happened because Sergio Ferreira's wife uh, wanted to do uh, a PhD at the London School of Economics around the corner from my laboratory. That was the only reason he came to my lab. He really wanted to go to Oxford to study pharmacology. I hope in telling you these stories, I've also illustrated what it takes to be a scientist. First of all, there has to be a driving curiosity to probe the undiscovered. Of course, there has to be intellect, talent, and endeavor, all of which are in abundance here in this room. But serendipity, or the happy accident, is also most important. I would urge you never to ignore the unusual, for it is the unusual which provides clues which lead you to make discoveries. It was an enormously happy accident that when I decided to do anything but chemistry, a pharmacology professor in Oxford had written asking for someone like me to go there. Great strides have been made in the last 50 years in the alleviation of human suffering either by therapeutic or prophylactic intervention. The medicines of today are based upon the accumulation of knowledge of thousands of years from folklore, serendipity, and scientific discovery. The medicines of tomorrow will depend upon the research being done today. Ignore the need for that research and we shall lose the cures that we are entitled to expect in the next 50 years for illnesses that afflict hundreds of millions of people, such as cancer, heart disease, viral diseases, lung diseases, and the tropical diseases. The new medicines of this new millennium will be based upon the discoveries being made now, and real discovery depends on fundamental or blue sky research in academia, biotech companies, or in big pharma. And I'm enormously optimistic that today's research will overcome the remaining scourges of our planet. Thank you very much.